So today we're going to jump into In the Shadow of the Silent Majorities or the End of the Social. So this is, uh, this is the text that follows um, Simulacra and Simulation. came out in the same year. Or no, not quite. Uh, it was a couple years after. So uh, in 1983. <clears throat> at least that's how it's credited at the, at the beginning of the book here. So one of the guiding questions for this book because it deals specifically with the role that the media play in crafting, shaping this thing called the masses. One of the guiding questions I'd like to pose is what comes first? Is it that the masses uh, inform the media, which then reaffirms the existence of such masses? Or is it the other way around? In what way do these two things come into being? Because oftentimes, reading Baudrillard's work, uh, you kind of lose sight of some of these types of questions that without asking we kind of passively just accept some of the rather outlandish things he says which I'm all for but you know let's try and be a little bit analytic about this I know that's a scary word but in this context I think it'll serve us it'll serve us well and I'm not saying I have an answer to this question but going through this text we'll see if we can sift out any possible uh, I guess foray or approach to an answer. So this text starts out with the following passage. The whole chaotic constellation of the social revolves around that spongy referent, that opaque but equally translucent reality, that nothingness, the masses. Okay, so conceiving of this thing called the social, uh, I believe that this is, this is taken specifically from Arendt, Hannah Arendt and her thesis in The Human Condition, that there was something of a dissipation of the distinction between the public and the private realms in favor of this sort of uh, social realm that saw the blending of the two, in, in, in a sense, to be really uh, quick about it. So here we're dealing with that, that idea of the social. So in what way then, and I will propose an answer, in what way then does the social manifest itself? And for Baudrillard here, it's really in the most exaggerated form we can think of, the media. And the relationship it has to the masses. The di dissemination of information to such an insane degree, sort of, I guess, is, is the most extreme version of this thing called the social. So there's an interesting translator's uh, note in, in on the first page, where in the French, uh, Baudrillard kind of um, moves between two terms to designate the masses. For him, there's la masse, but then there's also fair masse. So fair to do uh, mass just being um, like substance. So at, these terms can be used, uh, I guess, interchangeably of these phrases, where mass can both signify like a group of people, like a mass of employees, a mass of workers, but it can also mean just like a substance. So if you have you have a mass of, I don't know, mud. Don't know why that was my example. But you can have a mass in that way. So when Baudrillard uses it, it's sort of, uh, it, it's a little bit playful. 
because he, he at the same time as he's kind of crafting this discourse around what the masses are he wants to recognize their sort of facelessness how they are ultimately just a substance just a sort of mound of uh, a homogenous type type material or substance so following Arendt where in the human condition she has that one passage that says that in the social realm or in that sort of folding together or disappearance of the distinction between the private and the public she states that there can be no more greatness I guess in a sense you can't have an Achilles in uh, the, in the social realm so it is in that way that Baudrillard is seeing a sort of banality creep in so for him they are neither, that is the masses, they are neither good conductors of the political, nor good conductors of the social, nor even conductors of meaning in general. Everything flows through them. They are simply that which, I guess, absorbs while uh, refracting, where everything that hits it passes through it, not necessarily at the level of content, where let's say there was, um, and these we're dealing in very general terms here, at the level of content where let's say in the media sphere, one person, uh, there's some kind of catastrophic event somewhere on the globe, and 95% of people watching, the masses, do not in themselves take it or do not take it upon themselves to do anything or react in terms of that very content itself but in very many ways it is that kind of involvement or a sort of cathartic commitment to the emotional response that is induced or that is elicited in them by those very messages so the distinction can be made then, or no distinction can be made between media events precisely because they are in their very fabrication designed to elicit that response. So there is sort of a nullification. They are rendered sort of mute where a soccer match or football is something that can induce the exact same response yet it is something that also elicits a sort of apathy because it is not so much what is going on but how that going on is distributed and placed into the minds of the masses that is that is fascinating and this has been coming for a while now Baudrillard is very clear that this is not something that stands necessarily radically opposed to this um, this project of the social that has been going on for a while as we can think of it through our end but is really approaching I'm gonna say endpoint reluctantly but it it's approaching um, it's kind of terminal velocity it's I guess final moments in the course of this thing called sociality now Baudrillard's a homogenization of this thing called the masses which for him is always already a, a homogenized entity really this this point in his career I think was really the straw that broke the camel's back because uh, for a little a little background info uh, he earned his PhD in sociology
So he was, when he was saying these kinds of things, that the people are simply, you know, a, a homogenous mass, what that effectively did was marginalized him, well, he marginalized himself from his colleagues, where there was, there were these Foucauldian attempts to really understand uh, how power works in specific circles, and it, there were people taking Foucault's thought, as just one example, to apply to various social groups. Baudrillard was not so quick in saying that there is this thing called the social, or there is this thing called, like, a group mentality or anything like that in outside of the homogenous mass, but rather he wanted to look at the way in which our relation to uh, the spectacle of the media was in itself a force that resisted any such, I guess, molecular sort of development. So for him, Sociology can only depict the expansion of the social and its vicissitudes, the reabsorption, the implosion of the social escapes it. The hypothesis of the death of the social is also that of its own death. Where now we are seeing that precisely in this thing called the mass and its relationship to the media, that very death of the social, where there was at one point at least some ability to speak, to be heard, even if it wasn't a social realm that was that of finality. Now we are seeing that very, the very depth of that speech. So we can think of this example of television, where for him there's nothing quite as absurd as a television being left on with no one in the room. Because for him that, well, it's not so much absurd, but it's, it's uh, illuminating, where it reveals to him that the television is totally indifferent to the person viewing, whereas a a book can't read itself when it, you know, and this is very, I don't want to be too, like, kind of platonic about this, but a book can't read itself. There must be someone present, some sort of individual that can absorb the messages being dis uh, emitted from it, whereas that is not possible with the television or with the news as it presents itself in its spectacular form. So he elaborates then and states that there cannot be specific masses. So for him, to want to specify the term mass is a mistake. It is to provide meaning for that which has none. He goes on to say, one says the mass of workers, but the mass is never that of workers, nor of any other social subject or object. The peasant masses of old were not in fact masses. Only those form a mass who are freed from their symbolic bondage, released, only to be caught in infinite networks. So what does that mean? Well, we have to think back to symbolic exchange and death, where for him, this thing called the symbolic is, there is a militant desire to destroy it in favor of the structural law of value or the law of equivalence. So what that means is like kind of total operativity, where there is, we're slowly destroying the possibility for change by, you know, implementing these networks, implementing these strategies of understanding, of knowledge that crystallizes that which can be known and how things can be conducted. So it is for that reason that the masses are never those that exist prior to these networks 
in his term, these infinite networks, but are rather that which can only exist within them. So when people are reduced to that status, are reduced to networks, or if we think back to his first book, when they are rendered those cyberneticians, those people that are masters of these very networks, precisely because they have to be. One of the strategies employed by the masses in the media is to um, see value or to instill the idea that value is associated not with whatever message might be disseminated, but rather the very process of disseminating information, where information itself is the end goal. So as he states in, in another text, I think it's fatal strategies. I'm not, I can't remember exactly, but he could be for critique, but sorry. He states that if one is to be, to radically challenge the system, they must renounce information itself. So for him, as he states it here, the plan is always to get some meaning across, to keep the masses within reason, an imperative to produce meaning that takes the form of the constantly repeated imperative to moralize information, to better inform, to better socialize, to raise the cultural level of the masses, etc. Nonsense. The masses scandalously resist this imperative of rational communication. So he continues, Ma uh, messages are given to them. They only want some sign. They idolize the play of signs and stereotypes. They idolize any content so long as it re resolves itself into a spectacular sequence. What they reject then is the dialectic of meaning. So this is an idea he expounds upon in Fatal Strategies, the sort of end of the dialectics. But for him, he, see, he gets very weary as soon as you have these sort of information campaigns that are in the service of better, um, you know, moving towards like a more proper, a more effective way to be a, a political agent. So what it means to be a, like a good person. He's very skeptical about that because that would imply that there is that very idea of, you know, progress. But at the same time, that people can just simply take on whatever information is given to them without, you know, being able to critically evaluate it. Especially true today in the in the age of uh, alternative facts. But I, to to digress a little bit, um, there is a tendency over the past this twenty thirty years in uh, the literature. For people to locate at every moment a sort of affirmation of Baudrillard's ideas. So there was Reagan. It wasn't Reagan, there was Bush. It wasn't Bush, you know, it's, it's Trump. Um, but each of these moments, and what, what, what occurs is that people say, oh look, Baudrillard was right, or something of that, uh, in that capacity. But for me, these, these things far precede that. So if, if you just read this text or simulacrum simulation, one might certainly get the impression that Baudrillard is just speaking to a time in which there are televisions, in which there is this thing called the media. But really, this is a process that has been ongoing for, for several centuries, and that has gotten to this point. But I think we're, we are incorrect when we suddenly, or when we very 
um, strongly suggests that we can see Baudrillard's ideas affirmed in the present, which is true, but we cannot lose sight of the fact that this there is a telos to this. It hasn't just sprung up like that. There has been something of a progress progression to this point. So for him, this comes out into the form of, or at least that situation today, uh, in the form of the silent majorities. So the masses take on this, this sort of form. And we see here a sort of end of this thing called culture, which is, has, is a term that's had a very slippery history. But the way in which I, uh, I sort of imagine what Baudrillard is saying about culture is that as it becomes, I guess, uh, available via television screens, as it becomes available via the internet or anything like that, or by what artifacts we place in our houses and these cultural icons, what we see then is not a, a, an engagement with culture, but rather the consumption of it. There is more of an emphasis placed... Oh, there's a cat. There's more of an emphasis placed on one's ability to demonstrate their being cultured as opposed to actually engaging with, with a certain culture. And this is, this is highly emblematic of, like, of, the, of the West that sees no limits. The West will go and walk all over Machu Picchu, or they'll go to Vietnam and, and, and completely absorb everything there without actually retaining that at the level of the culture. Not to say that that can really happen, but that it there seems to be less of an engagement in that sense, where, you know, white people really love to go to other, to really love to travel, which is a really fascinating phenomenon in the context of this argument of the masses. So in kind of elaborating upon this telos to this, this phenomenon, Baudrillard states that uh, when the political emerged during the Renaissance, it was at first only a pure game of signs, played on the absence of truth, as did later the worldly strategy of the Jesuits on the absence of God. And he goes on to continue to talk about Nietzsche, who well knew, it is in this disregard for a social, psychological, historical truth, in the exercise of simulacra as such, that the maximum of political energy is found, where the political is a game, and is not yet given a reason. So it's that, thinking about Machiavelli, in what way is there a, a sort of mastery of signs required to master this political sphere? How there is something of a symbolic attachment to it. Now all this is, is, has dissipated because thinking about information and the way that it's disseminated and what you know constitutes a good, uh, I guess, political body. And this is really indicative of the left. Not to say I'm, I'm opposed to that, I'm... I'm left as hell, but there is a tendency to dictate what a good person is, and there are rules around that, or rather laws almost, and they're in flux, and there is something of a game being played now, and we can't necessarily lose sight of the fact that when Baudrillard is talking about some sort of a loss, there are always the ruins 
of that which was was apparently lost or that which disappeared that guide something of a symbolic order that is that is maintained today so this shift occurred in the 18th century so in the um, since the revolution that the political has taken a decisive turn it took upon itself a social reference the social invested it now this is culminated into that silent majority or the masses which is for Baudrillard an imaginary referent that does not mean they don't exist however it means that the representation is no longer possible the masses are no longer a referent because they no longer belong to the order of representation so this demands some kind of clarification because when we think of Baudrillard we think of simulation when we think of simulation we might automatically think of representation now they're in the realm of the symbolic or if we just think back to how he had just explained the political where there was a demand for a sort of mastery of science a sort of play of signification it is not as though Baudrillard is a critique critic of simulation or of representation per se rather it can take on more than one form some of which I'll say for now just two forms that of an oppressive simulation and that of a non-oppressive one. So the oppressive simulation is the one that does not see contradiction, that is totally operative, that doesn't, is, is like, in his later work, the term that would come to supplant this would be integral reality, uh, a sort of um, totally functional system. Whereas a non-oppressive simulation is one that recognizes that of course everyone is already embedded within simulation it is how anyone presents themselves to anyone else in their appearance it is the recognition of that which is then susceptible to change to development to anything of that sort so when Baudrillard writes that the silent majorities are no longer representable it means they have been solidified crystallized in a form that they cannot escape from and it is that form that has taken over completely that sort of um, non-oppressive simulation or that non-oppressive representation that was susceptible to change, development, um, a sort of rhizomatic possibility. So in the wake of this sort of transition into the silent majorities, the system has, uh, has uh, mobilized certain strategies to convince people that they have not lost this sort of individuation in the form of a one's own representation. So this is why, for Baudrillard, it seeks to reverse its strategies from passivity to participation, from silence to speech. He continues, everywhere the masses are encouraged to speak, they are urged to live socially, electorally, organizationally, sexually, in participation, in festival, in free speech etc. Now all of these provide the illusion of a sort of uh, uh, reclaiming of that thing lost but the, it, these are all just part of that very system the system of information of the especially the dissemination of information where it does not come down to it at the form of content or at the level of content but rather is all a part of 
the demonstration of the spectacle of oneself. So in the case of sexuality, where pornography is probably the most searched thing on the internet at any given time, for Baudrillard that would mark not necessarily a sort of um, realization of sexual desire in the form of this, the possibility of the internet, but it's rather a strategy evoked by the silent majorities to convince them of sexuality, to convince them of a thing called sexuality that is innately human and that it is something that we have never lost. And we are we do that by compensating, by living through the hyper-real version of it. The case for subjectivity, however, in this sphere, so in the case of pornography, there is still a subject to some extent that engages with that individual moment. Like the person typing up, you know, whatever on the internet or, or, or anything. So for Baudrillard addresses this, and he states that the mass realizes that paradox of being both an object of simulation, it only exists at the point of convergence of all the media waves, which depict it, while simultaneously being a subject of simulation, capable of refracting all the models and of emulating them by hypersimulation. So it's in this way that we are sort of entering, it's sort of post-human subjectivity. Now what that will necessarily look like is, is interesting because it, with, by engaging, my god, sorry, by engaging with Baudrillard's work from like start to finish, it's difficult to say whether or not he wants to totally crush the system, say there's, you know, we're, we're screwed, there's no possible way out of this, or if he wants to sort of see the possibility behind it, where he states, well, he doesn't state this explicitly, but he wants to consider the possibilities that are made possible by this very uh, transition, by this system. So, for instance, he's very clear in denouncing uh, the apathy of the masses, where, it, and for me, I think he wants to see more political engagement, but a political engagement that is cautious of the extent to which it is informed, not by a sort of proper content, or sorry, not by the, the spectacle of content, but by an actual proper content, by a, like real opinions, whatever that'll look like, and that's uh, we get into some kind of dangerous territory there. But he does denounce apathy generally. So for those people that think you know, Baudrillard's just a cynic, pessimistic, like there's no hope, we're all screwed. I wouldn't be so quick to say that. I think that he, there are many points in which he lays out a sort of strategy of resistance. It's difficult to see at times, but I think it's there, and I think it's important to consider that. So in the case of a thing like a survey, which you take some time to elaborate on, that is supposed to take the opinions, beliefs, or whatever of those masses or of those people, there are still subjects on the one end, you know, filling in surveys or whatever. But any sort of result that you get in this system is, does not reflect some kind of true 
uh, opinion or belief or whatever, but is just the media speaking through the masses. So whatever ideas permeate in the media spheres, and I'm not just referring to like CNN or Fox or, or anything like that, but in that very, uh, very radiating, radiating mystique of information itself, what we see then is the affirmation not of a real human opinion, but of the semblance of it, of, I guess, the simulation of their being, this thing called an opinion. At no time, for Baudrillard, are the masses politically or historically engaged in a conscious manner. They have only ever done so out of perversity and complete irresponsibility. And this is like, um, you know, the collective unconscious uh, sort of groupthink that is very, you know, very messed up and has a very terrible history. But it is only in those forms, the very oppressive forms, does Baudrillard see there having been some kind of political um, engagement. These masses of the silent majorities know then, for Baudrillard, that there is no liberation, and that a system is abolished only by pushing it into a hyperlogic, by forcing it into an excessive practice which is equivalent to a brutal amortization. So it's like there are two possibilities for Baudrillard. There's either complete collapse, where a system is totally driven to its destruction, which would have pretty negative effects for this thing called the human, or we will see this total functional operativity. In the, I guess in the form of like Foucault's carceral state, total surveillance, total self-surveillance, total control. And it's difficult to know whether which one will take over which in Baudrillard here. Because like I stated, he, he does kind of sway between these two possibilities and what he thinks will actually arise. Now there is something that stands radically opposed to the masses in some form, and that is terrorism. So, Baudrillard's uh, relationship to this thing called terrorism has gotten him in some trouble, you know. People think, like, are you siding with the enemy? Where he doesn't want to just say that terrorists are have no logic or they're just, you know, messed up. People want to see the world burn. He thinks that they correspond to a certain, or they are a response to an oppressive system. So for him, terrorism claims to really aim at capital, so global imperialism, etc. But it mistakes its enemy, and in doing so, aims at its true enemy, which is the social. So he goes on. Terrorism does not aim at making anything speak, at resuscitating or mobilizing anything. This is in opposition to the media. It has no revolutionary consequences in this regard. It is rather a complete counterperformance for which it is violently reproached. But that isn't its game. It aims at the masses in their silence, a silence mesmerized by information. It aims at the white magic of the social encircling us, that of information, of simulation, of deterrence, of anonymous and random control, in order to precipitate its death by accentuating it. So it's for that reason, or because it, it represents that sort of uh, position, that it stands opposed to the masses, because it doesn't, uh, it is does not ascribe to the logic of the masses. It is something that speaks, speaks, yet makes a spectacle. So in that way, it is of course part of that very media system, but it's sort of by 
and this is how it drives the system to its logical conclusion, is that it is more of what the media is. Rather than simply negating it, it works in its performance. Or, we can look at this another way, and he proposes that it is the only non-representative act. In this regard, it has an affinity with the masses, who are the only non-representable reality, because it doesn't have a rep it's not a representable act, because it does not correspond to the logic of the dissemination of information, right? It's not clean. It's not ready to be consumed. It's something that is very uh, dissonant, something that's very jarring, and that does not allow the, the comfort of the masses to continually be in that sort of position. It kind of rests them out of it, makes them scared, paranoid, which, you know, today I would go so far as to say that that is in itself part of the very system, you know, we like to make people scared, because then they consume, you know, George Bush's thing, like, don't forget everyone, keep keep shopping in the wake of, you know, uh, following 9-11. So terrorism, in the act of taking hostages, plays on the uh, lack of represent representability of the masses. So those people, innocent people that don't deserve this, uh, when they are taken hostage, it is not as though they are stripped of an identity, because for Baudrillard, that identity is already lost. That identity is gone in the in the wake of this uh, the silent majorities. So in that way, it almost makes the terrorist act almost makes that loss of a face apparent, right? By bringing it to its uh, its extreme form in that very in that very loss. So it's in that way that terrorism by not simply negating the system, as I've stated, but working within the parameters of the oppressiveness of that very system, points to the very limits of it, and drives it, I guess slowly, to, the, to its uh, possible destruction. This lack of a face, or this sort of death, that's how Baudrillard places it, or says, says it, makes, or sort of reverses the notion that the social is something that is dissipating, that it's approaching its own death in the form of the masses. Because uh, since, for him, since it, already, since it is already the accumulation of death, in effect, we are in a civilization of the super-social and simultaneously in a civilization of non-degradable, indestructible residue piling up as the social spreads. So this sort of post-socialness is really the social to the nth power, driven to be more than itself, to continually circumvent its limits, to absorb every single point that stands opposed to it, in the form of rendering it spectacle, rendering it, uh, putting, putting things in museums, making it consumable on the mass media, in the mass media, or anything of that sort. Now I'll skip a bit because, uh, one of the following chapters, um, the implosion of meaning in the media, appeared in Simulacra and Simulation. So if you've read that, then you, you've already read this one. And this happens often in uh, Baudrillard's work, where chapters will reappear. Um, because it, many times his works were, were edited, so it's important to, to notice if uh, a text is you know, actually written by him 
or if it is simply an edited text. So like screened out compiles a bunch of different essays that appear at different points and different in different texts. The Conspiracy of Art has some essays that appear in other places. The Battle Illusion, same thing. So if anyone's taking, you know, trying to get through all Baudrillard's works, uh, you, you, don't be surprised if you see essays sprout up again. And it can be kind of a sign of relief because, you know, you like want to get through a book and you realize, oh wow, I read the last two chapters already. And then jump through. Not to say you should be excited about not having to read, but that feels good. So the final chapter is called Our Theater of Cruelty. Now this this chapter was one of my first forays into Baudrillard's work back in my, my undergrad. Um, and it's, it's not easy because really a lot of this stuff is difficult to engage with on its own. So he starts out with this, uh, the first section in this chapter titled Mogadishu. So the event that Baudrillard is referring to in Mogadishu was with uh, uh, Lufthansa Flight 181 that had been uh, taken over by um, four members of the uh, Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine who, co who called themselves Commando Martyr uh, Halima. I'm getting these nice, this nice description off of Wikipedia. Uh, that was taken over by, I guess, the Badr gang. So what had occurred was yeah, it's a pretty long story. These people take over the plane. However, in the end, the German army, after the plane landed in one of the cities, um, Mogadishu, the police got in there, successfully saved the hostages in a, in a rather um, uh, kind of exaggerated or uh, spectacular uh, rescue mission that was very risky and that got the uh, whoever called the order into some heat because of the, the risk they were taking. So of this event, a terrorist event, um, par excellence, Baudrillard says that it is not terrorism that is, that is the violence. It is only the spectacle it unleashes that is truly a violent. So it is for him our theater of cruelty, the only one that remains to us, perhaps equal in every respect to that of our toe, or to that of the Renaissance, and extraordinary, in that it brings together the spectacular and the challenge at their highest points. So what, what occurs in the spectacle is not the victory, of course not the victory of the terrorists, but an, uh, actually a reversion, where the opposite is accomplished by the terrorists. They have encouraged, for Baudrillard, inordinately, the sacred union of all the world forces of repression. They have reinforced the political order, etc. Let's go all the way. They have killed their Stamheim comrades. Since if they have since if they have had not launched and then botched up this operation, the others would still be living. So Bader and Stamheim demand a little bit. Uh, who are these people? And I'll explain. So these people were referred to as the Bader Meinhof group. So this is all from Wikipedia because it explains it the most concisely. So they were a West German far-left militant organization around founded in 1970. So the key figures were Andreas Bader and uh, uh, Ulrich Meinhof. So Ulrich Meinhof was involved in Bader's escape from jail in 1970. The West government, as well as most Western media and literature, considered the Red Army faction to be a terrorist organization. So, what happened was, 
in the case of Bader, uh, he was sent to prison, and it is believed, or at least the what the story was, was that he killed himself in uh, in prison. However, some people have come to think that it, it was actually the police that killed him there. So this was in Stamheim prison. So that's what Bojard is referring to when he says that they have killed their Stamheim uh, comrades. So it's in that way that there is that sort of eradication of contradiction of opposition in the spectacular, um, I guess, portrayal of the triumph of the, um, the police in the wake of this terrorist act. Now with this event, with this event, or with the conspiracy around it, uh, Baudrillard is very weary. So in Stamheim with the people who are, you know, believed to have committed suicide, Baudrillard resists the idea that if the masses just knew the truth, if there was a truth, let's say the German police did kill uh, Bader and, and his comrades, that for Baudrillard would not mean that there would be a sudden um, uh, an awakening by the people, a sort of um, enlightenment. But rather for Baudrillard, there, there is no difference. For him, it's really just a load of rubbish. A death is romantic, romantic or it is not. So he, he, he states that we know that the German state right, is a fascist entity just like any state in itself. And it is in that capacity that it does not matter. And we cannot get caught up on these individual circumstances that are that purport to reveal a sort of truth. Because that's what we invest our energy in. And that's what the masses like. like these instances of truth. So they can sit back, let it, uh, let it wash over them, and not affect them in any way. So even that resistance to the German state in the um, in the unlawful deaths of Bader and his comrades, for Baudrillard that opposition is in itself part and parcel of that very system that relies on a discourse of, of truthfulness, of reason, of information that is only ever oppressive. So it's not as though there can be some sort of beneficial information. There can't be proper information because it is information itself that is oppressive. So that gets pretty well to the end there. Um, it, it's, uh, this is a nice, a nice book here, and I, there's, there's a lot more. It's kind of repetitive, but uh, there are some important things to consider here, especially the role of terrorism, which Baudrillard will elaborate on in the next book I do, which would be uh, Fatal Strategies and the role that terrorism plays, and essentially the thesis that he puts forth is that he does not fear, it's not so much thesis but an opinion, he does not fear terrorism nearly as much as he fears a state capable of eradicating it, which is an idea that you, you say that today and people's brains explode. Because for him, terrorism are the remnants of a sort of opposition that has been lost. So as we have seen in his earlier texts, Marxism um, is just one example, or Foucault, for instance, of Foucaultian analysis. These are things that feed into the system, that work within it. So of course, to some extent, terrorism does the exact same thing as I have demonstrated or as I have presented here.
but it is something that stands opposed to it. It is something that is more radically opposed to the system. Now, whether or not it, it's actually effective at that is, you know, up for debate. And I'm sure anyone else would have, uh, would know more about that than me, or at least would have a, uh, an interesting idea regarding that. But on that note, really, for anyone that, that checked this one out, I hope you enjoyed it. I, uh, I did. I've gone through this book two or three times now. It's good stuff. It's, it's all really it's complicated stuff for sure. But I hope I was able to clear anything up. But if not, and anyone has some, has some beef with that, you know how to leave it. And I guess I'll check you out next time. Take care.